This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. I'm speaking in good faith today with two priests from Holy Trinity Cathedral, talking about leading up to the Orthodox celebration of Easter, which this year is a week later than the Western Christian tradition. I'm speaking with Father George Nikas. Father George is the very Reverend Archimandrite, is his official title, a leader of the flock here. And the assistant priest is Father Patrick O'Rourke, Father George, thank you so much, both of you, for taking time. This is a congregation that has been in Salt Lake City since 1905, coming up on 100 years of this building, which really is a beautiful landmark in the city, the Holy Trinity Cathedral. Thank you for allowing me to take your time and have the interview here in this beautiful space. Our very pleasure. Thank you for being with us. I wonder if I could ask just about your earliest memories of an Easter celebration in church, if you think back. So my father was a priest, a Greek Orthodox priest. So I know you showed up to services. I showed up to services <laughs> and actually he had me in the altar when I think I was like three years old. Uh, not that I knew what I was doing, of course, but I guess I was well behaved enough and in awe that I, I, was, I sat quietly. I would say one of the earliest recollections, I don't know, I must have been probably elementary school, was the resurrection service, because of course, my, even though I was young, my parents would obviously bring me to it. And I remember in the, being in the pews with my mother and the church all of a sudden went black because we turned off all the lights and then the priest comes out with one big candle that represents the unwaning light of Christ from the tomb, of course, and then from which the altar boys light their candles and disperse it to the faithful who are holding unlit candles. And I just remember that was an awe moment. I think I thought it was cool that everything was dark all of a sudden and then come back and of course the joyous singing of the Christos Anesti, Christ is risen from the tomb by death, trampling upon death and to those in the tombs bestowing life. And then we would go outside and, and sing more hymns and, and then of course we would go home and have something nice to eat from having fasted. Of course I was young, I'm sure they didn't have me fast. But uh, So it was uh, just the beauty of being together and, and kind of coming from darkness into light. I think I remember that even from a younger age. Yeah, that sounds so memorable. Father Patrick, did you grow up in the Greek tradition? I did not, as you might guess with a name like Patrick O'Rourke. I uh, was guessing because, yes. I'm not Greek. <laughs> I am Irish and German by heritage. I was raised in Ohio, and I was raised in a Pentecostal church. So early Easter memories for me were gathering on a Sunday morning with the faithful in our church, and especially all the candy and the Easter egg hunt and all those things. My first Orthodox Easter was when I was in college at Ohio State. I had come into the church the summer before entering my final year at Ohio State. So I was in the depths of preparing for finals, and my friends that were going to church said, okay, we get it, but you have to come to this midnight service. You know, with a name like Patrick O'Rourke, you might guess that my family background was Roman Catholic. Right. Um, and for everybody else in my family, all, that's true. So I had known of midnight masses. I knew that that was a thing, but I always associated it with Christmas. So I got to learn about it for the first time as a college student, and then I went. And much like Father George said, you know, the experience of being up in the middle of the night 
and then all the lights turn down. And there's a joyful bursting silence where everyone's waiting for a moment. And I didn't know what the moment was. I didn't know what we were waiting for. And then I saw the priest come out with the candle lit. And then to watch as that flame spread to everybody else's candles. And then to have this candlelit service was really impressive. It made a a permanent mark. And I don't think that at the moment I had considered that I might end up a priest. But I knew that this change that I had made in my life was now permanent. That this was what I was going to do every year. That symbolism really gives me chills to just picture it in my mind even, as you described that both of you have from different ages. I saw a video you made on the church website, Father Patrick, where you talk and you explain to people who may not know what Orthodox Christianity is, as opposed to the Western tradition. Can you just give us a quick overview of that? Sure. Well, you've sort of let the cat out of the bag by opposing it to the Western tradition. (laughs) The Orthodox tradition is generally comprising the Eastern churches. Those originally in the Greek and Syriac-speaking Eastern half of the former Roman Empire, it is not quite as pyramidical as the Roman tradition, where all authority leads to a single person, but rather it's a conference of local churches, each with their own hierarchies. So when we talk about Greek Orthodox or Romanian Orthodox or Russian Orthodox, we all share the same faith with different enculturations, with with different language that's spoken, different styles of music, but the, the services are the same and the theology is the same, and we are in communion with each other. So any local congregation, the service will be in their local language? Generally speaking, with some pretty broad caveats. Perhaps some of the liturgy or some of the the music maybe is different language. Right. So here in Salt Lake City, we celebrate the services roughly 50-50 between Greek and English. We have parishes in our own diocese that do almost all English. It really depends on the makeup of the parish. But then if you go back to the old countries, and I'm doing air quotes for everyone listening, (laughs) if you go to Greece or something like that, you'll hear it in Greek. And and that's the same Greek that we're using, but it's not necessarily the spoken Greek. Hmm. The nearest analog that I could probably draw is, it's probably similar to reading Shakespeare. It's a fancier version of the same language that would take concerted effort to really sit and and dig into and and understand to your average person. Um, And the same is true for like the Russian church. They're they're not using Russian, for example, they're using what's called church Slavonic, which is an antiquated version, a sort of early derivation of that Slavic language that became Russian later on. Mm. But that has stayed as a constant in each of these cases, so that that language is preserved. Correct. A question for you, Father George. I wonder if you could tell me, throughout the course of an Easter celebration of the day, how is that observed in this tradition? So, for example, we have our Holy Week that is coming up, so maybe it's better to just describe that as as a whole. We begin Saturday of Lazarus, where, of course, we commemorate the raising of Lazarus. That is a festal day. It's a happy day. We use bright colors. It's a foreshadowing of Christ's own resurrection. And that leads us right into Palm Sunday, where we celebrate the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, marking you know the zenith of his earthly ministry. And the same mouths that were exclaiming, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, would be the same people just a few days later, so to speak, chanting, crucify him, crucify him. But 
Lazarus Saturday taken with Palm Sunday is a high point in the festival, in liturgical life. And now, of course, Palm Sunday also is celebrated with pomp and circumstance, with bright colors. The music is very upbeat, the hymns of the church. Then that evening of Palm Sunday, we begin, that is when Holy Week technically starts and is a transition from bright white gold colors, green, to purple, to a more somber tone. The liturgical music also represents that. So the first service Sunday evening is called the bridegroom service, or nymphios service in Greek, in which we celebrate Christ coming as the suffering servant into the world. His ministry, which was that I came to serve, not to be served. That, of course, led to his crucifixion, death, and subsequent resurrection. That continues pretty much Monday into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So Wednesday afternoon in most Orthodox churches, we celebrate the sacrament of holy unction. There's a brief interruption of the somberness of the week because holy unction is a sacrament, so therefore it has to have an upbeat sensation to it. It is a healing service, of course, where we anoint people with holy oil as recorded in the Epistle of James. Let the elders come and anoint people who are sick and to pray. Right. And of course, with everything going on in the world, especially with the war in Ukraine, we can, we can use it. this world can use a lot of praying and healing. Thursday morning is also a brighter service in which we celebrate the institution of the Holy Eucharist, the mystical supper, the washing of the feet. And then we transition back into the somber mode. Thursday night, we celebrate the service of the 12 Gospels, the crucifixion service, which is among the more lowliest points, obviously, in the life of Christ, his actual death. And we have a procession inside the church of the crucified Lord. There are 12 gospel readings, all of which are narratives from the various evangelists of the description of the and depiction of the crucifixion. And the faithful at the end have an opportunity to come and, and venerate the cross. Friday morning, we have a service that is called the Royal Hours, which is also repeating many of the gospel readings that we had the night before in different psalms. And then Friday afternoon is a dramatic, a very dramatic service, usually around 3 p.m. We have what is called the Apokathilosis in Greek. Uh, you'll be tested on that later. <laughs> uh, the unnailing service or the descent from the cross. Ah. Unnailing is the literal translation of apokathilosi from the Greek word, in which we, the priest comes out and with the assistance of some altar boys, literally takes down Christ from the cross, wraps him in a, what would have been the linen shroud Nicodemus had brought for us. It's, of course, a, a clean bedsheet that we use to wrap, symbolizing the shroud to wrap up Christ, and we put the body on the altar table. And then we have a procession of what is called the epitaphio, that is then placed that evening, or that afternoon actually, also in a very flowerly adorned cuvuclion, uh, which is, represents the sepulcher. The pitafio is a cloth that is intricately woven with jewels, which is basically Christ in the tomb. It depicts Christ in the tomb, surrounded by the mother of Jesus, the Virgin Mary, and some of the apostles and angels in the background. So after we take Christ in the altar, where again the music of the day is also very somber in, in tone. We process in the church and then place the is the cloth, as it's called, into the sepulcher that is usually adorned with beautiful flowers, lilies, irises, tulips, you know, roses, carnations. 
and if they were not as expensive gardenias. And well, there's a joyful anticipation of what is to come, but at that moment it's very somber because it's Christ being placed in the tomb. That evening, and we're still wearing purple vestments, the hymns of the church again are still very somber. The evening we have a little bit of a transition. In Greek it's called a harmolipi, a joyful sorrow, where we, it's the first time during the week that has predominantly been purple and somber, where we start to transition into a little bit more uplifting musically, because it is an anticipation, even though our Lord is in the tomb, we are now anticipating his three-day resurrection. So the priest will wear bright color vestments. Uh, we have a procession of the sepulcher around the church. The whole congregation comes out following. We have little girls that are dressed as what's called the mirophores, the mirror bearers in white outfits. And they're sprinkling flowers, rose petals, and what have you, uh, also kind of as a foreshadowing of Christ's triumphant resurrection. And before the people come into the church, they pass underneath the sepulcher that our young men are people who are strong like Father Patrick are holding up <laughs> to pass under. And then we take the epitaph into the altar, which represents the tomb of Christ, in a way that becomes now the anticipation of the empty tomb that will be celebrated the next day at the midnight resurrection service, where, of course, the music is very pomp and circumstance, if you will, very joyful in nature. And so you have joy at the beginning of Holy Week, or right before Holy Week begins, technically, with Lazarus Saturday and Palm Sunday, for the most part, a very somber tone during the week. And then, of course, we go back to a very joyful Fourth of July, if you will, style celebration at the end, celebrating the reason we are Orthodox Christians. If Christ had not resurrected, we would have no religion to proclaim, and Christianity would be dead. But because of his resurrection, it is indeed worthy to be celebratory. Thank you so much for walking me through that. The common term for the Saturday morning service that you'll hear people say is protianastasi, the first resurrection or the, the first taste of the resurrection. We understand that Christ in his body was in the tomb, but his soul went down into the underworld, into Hades. Mm -hmm. This is actually the image that we use to represent the resurrection. It's not you know, him sort of barging out of a tomb, but it's him in Hades, in the underworld, and he's grabbing Adam and Eve by their wrists and pulling them back to life. Mm. And so pulling all of us back to life. The beautiful way that it's celebrated is that the priest will throw bay leaves all over the church. Bay leaves representing the victory because bay leaves are also called laurel leaves. And if you remember like the Olympic Games, they originally didn't get medals around their neck. If you won, you were given a crown of laurel. And so we're throwing these laurel leaves all over the place to show that the victory is upon us. It's already coming. And this year, we actually have the special opportunity to baptize new Christians during that service, mm. um, which is its traditional place in the history of the church. If you were an adult coming into the church, it would be on Holy Saturday morning that you'd be brought in and baptized. And so I actually get the chance to do that this year with about a dozen new Orthodox Christians. And so they've been anticipating and waiting more so than the rest of us because we've had Holy Weeks before. We have had celebrations of the resurrection before. This is their first. And they'll be brought in while Christ is in the underworld pulling our forebears back to life. And they get to participate in that new life for the first time. Mm. Maybe you've just answered this, Father Patrick, but I was going to ask each of you, if you think through the week and the various services and the music and the readings, are there one or two moments 
that are most meaningful to you? Most meaningful? It's, well, you know, maybe that's not even fair. They're each different in their own way. Absolutely. But for the sake of answering the question, <laughs> I mean, it's hard for us to separate it because yeah. without the week leading up to, then there is no Easter. So I guess it is also difficult to separate each of the moments and pick one. I am especially fond of that Saturday morning service because we get to start to proclaim the victory after all of this lamentation and sorrow. And, you know, we're not just play acting. We're not just putting on a stage show of Christ's last week. We're participants. When we take his body down from the cross, we remember that we're the ones that put him there. And so when we take care of that body and we wrap it in linen, we also take that role of his followers. For me, I think the Saturday morning is what my mind immediately jumps to as perhaps my favorite moment in the week. But I think there, there are a couple other really powerful moments during the week. I think Father George had answered in his response to your prior question, processing with the crucified Christ around the church for a priest. It's especially evocative because we carry a cross Mm -hmm. and on that cross is our savior. And I'm reminded of his command that if anybody wants to follow him, they have to take up their cross, deny themselves and follow him. And so his cross was empty and he was carrying it to his death. When we pick up our cross, it's filled with his life. It's not just that implement of death that it was for him because we're on this side of history. So when we pick up that cross, all the weight of it and the mortality of it and all of that is there. And even in that deep lament, though, we remember that our Savior is on that cross and that it is through this week and through his death that we even come to resurrection. And so, Father, again, he, he shared the word karmolipi, that joyful sorrow. So I think that's the highlight of the joyful sorrow for me. And then the joy begins on that Saturday morning. You know, it seems to me that there's an effort to involve all of the senses. Absolutely. From the candles to the music to the, so much symbolism. And I can't help but thinking that as many times in any uh, Christian congregation where there is Eucharist, or communion or sacrament. How meaningful that would be that you talked, uh, Father George, about taking the body from the crucifix and laying it on that table where the bread and wine are prepared. That would be a, a striking once a year reminder, I think, that you would never forget what the purpose of that bread and wine was for on all the other Sundays. Just it's quite dramatic to me, the use of all of the different senses. In response to that, you know, the, why do we use all of our senses? Well, because God gave them to us. Because this is the way that we know the world, is through the senses that he's given us to, to read and interpret in different ways. And so it would be incomplete to use only our hearing or only our touch or only our sight. Rather, you know, he presented himself to us through all of these ways. And so when we invoke all of our senses in worshiping him, it is doing an important thing. It's not just filling us in all the ways that we can know him in this material reality. It's also presenting the reality of the kingdom of God to us through this material reality. So everything about the church services is intended to be an icon for us of that immaterial reality through material means. And so, for example, to your point, every Sunday in our tradition 
is a mini Easter. Mm. So every Sunday throughout the year, we wear white vestments. We celebrate the resurrection. The hymns of every Sunday are resurrectional as though it's Easter again. So you're right in saying that that one time a year, you have this very real visceral presentation of it with a life-size body of Christ that we take off of a life-size cross. And it's important that we have that once a year to inform the 51 other weeks every year. I would like to ask you as well, Father George, again, the unfair question, is there something that's a particularly meaningful part of that week of celebration? For myself, I would say it is at the actual resurrection service, the midnight service, actually right before it, when the, the church is darkened and we light our candle from the vigil lamp that we have on the altar. And we turn around and against the door, the door opens, the raw gates of the altar, and it's pitch black, and, the, and that's the only light in the church. And the priest comes out and we sing, usually traditionally in Greek first, in English, come receive the light from the unwaning light and glorify Christ who is risen from the dead. Again, because that is such a powerful moment, it's an anticipatory moment because it's been leading up. It's a moment that is a prelude to when we go outside to for the first time sing the Christos Anesti, the Christ is risen, triumph for him, because that is what's signifying that Christ is risen. The light coming out of the darkness of the cave, the light coming into the world, Christ coming into the world, and bringing the world with him to salvation, those who believe in his name. It's a powerful moment. It's an honorary moment because I, as the priest, Father Patrick or any priest, we are in that single moment, I would say, being in every essence of the word disciple, apostle, because we are the vehicles at that moment, the clear vehicles and vessels that Christ is using to convey his salvation to the world. In other words, us transmitting the light, just as when Christ performed the miracle of the five loaves and fed the 5,000 men, women, and plus children, he blessed, he broke, he gave it to the disciples, and the disciples then gave to the people in the same way with Holy Communion. Mm. We are distributing Holy Communion to the people, the light of Christ is being distributed to the faithful through the priest. And it, it's also a subtle reminder of how humble the moment is, humbling, I should say, the moment is, to know what our place is in this world that we as simple mere mortals can be utilized for something above and beyond. You know, I think it's beautiful, actually, that you refer to that moment that relates to when you were very, very young. Mm-hmm. We talked about it at the beginning. Yes. So growing up with a father who was a, a priest, priest and yes. a religious family, at some point you have to individually take a look at what the tradition has been. I was raised in this. I've just assumed this is how things are. Sure. But at some point you have to either have an experience or make a decision of belief that this really is what I choose whether you're a priest or whether you're a member of the congregation. Can you talk to me about that process of belief or what helped you believe or how you chose to believe? Sure. So my story would be very different than, say, Father Patrick's, who had a, uh, from his, from being in the frat and being in a non-Orthodox tradition and then converting over time with that. Myself, obviously, being kind of cradle Orthodox, because, and, and not just cradle Orthodox, but in the home of an Orthodox priest. 
and my grandfather, my dad's dad, was a chanter in the mm. Orthodox Church. I cannot say there was necessarily any cosmic moment of, uh, as we hear in the evangelical tradition of being born again or things like that, because for us as Orthodox Christians from the time you're baptized, but there wasn't any unique event. I would say it was a lifelong process. My parents didn't necessarily want me to become a priest because of trials and tribulations that they had gone through. Mm. They wanted me sometimes to be a little bit more independent, but to serve the church. But as I was going through college, slowly, so over time, I was realizing that, because I always wanted to do something that would help people, I realized that, no, I wanted to be a priest. And I think one of the reasons I also chose to remain celibate is so that my children, because in the Orthodox Church, many times clergy are transferred from one parish to another. Uh, my dad was transferred in the middle, uh, two weeks after my junior year in high school, which is a very difficult time to have to get up and go somewhere new. Right. So I remember at that time, I didn't want that to happen to my children. So I think that's one of the reasons that led me to remain celibate and not get married, so that I, in my mind, I could fully do what I felt was right for the church, even if it might go against the grain or popular opinion, and not have to worry about how my family may or may not suffer those consequences. I don't know if that answered your question exactly, but... It just sounds like this is something that grew in you as you grew up. Yes, and obviously, being the son of a priest, there's a saying in Greek, the son of a priest, uh, the grandchild of the devil, because usually there's the expectation on the one hand where, you know, you have to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes as the son of or daughter of a priest because, you know, you have to be, you're, you're perfect. And then the reverse is that because you are and because we're supposedly so controlled and contained as the child of a priest, that you actually become the opposite because of the... So I think just looking at a video of Father Patrick's children will show you no... <laughs> I'm just joking. That three and one, they're well on their way. So. <laughs> well, Father Patrick... My boys I, are perfect, thank you. <laughs> Maybe two questions for you. You mentioned this moment in college and thinking that this was such a memorable and meaningful event to you that something had changed. For you, is there a moment or a period of time that is the reason that you believe there is a God, that you see God working in the world, in your life, or was it something you felt maybe even at that service? Without question. So like I said at the beginning of the interview, I was raised in a Pentecostal church. We were a faithful family. My very first video game was not a Nintendo or a Sega Genesis or anything like that. It was a, we had a five inch floppy disk and it was a Bible quiz game. Uh that was on our little orange and black three or four generations behind modern technology little desktop computer that we had running on dos exactly you had to you had to (laughs) see colon backsplash start up and tell it to run the program and then it would scramble the books of the bible and you'd have to put them back in order or it would Mm. give you a line and you'd have to type john 316 Mm. so i was raised in a church i was raised without any question that there is a God and that his son is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and so on. By the time I got to college, though, I thought, well, what if not? Mm. And then I enter, you know, college-level philosophy classes, and I'm beaten over the head with the fact that God is the Easter Bunny for grown-ups. It's a way for us to deal with death and so on and so forth, and not everybody believes in the same way, and different faiths around the world have different answers to this. And so I started to relativize it. And by the time I hit that point, my junior year in college, I wouldn't have said so, but I was for all intents and purposes, agnostic, if not 
pushing closer to atheistic. Mm-hmm. So much so that I wasn't a praying person at all. Like Father George led on, I was in a fraternity, and that was my whole world, my social circle, everything. I think, though, in my soul, I was praying. I was asking for a result. Where is this going? Where? What am I going to do when I graduate? Where is my life going to head? And one day, coming home from my summer job working at a moving company, my dad called me and he said, you need to get back into the church and read your Bible and say your prayers to his 22-year-old frat boy son. So I hung up on him. And the next day, I was at the same red light where he had called me. And I looked over like you do at a red light and just observe your surroundings. And there was a Christian bookstore in the shopping center to my right. So I went through the red light and made the next turn and came back around. I went into that Christian bookstore and instead of finding a Bible, which is what I intended to go buy because I'm a white man from Ohio, middle America. It's kind of like who I'm supposed to be. Mm -hmm. So I I thought at least I, I should probably own one. And instead of finding a Bible, I saw a book that was called Light from the Christian East, an introduction to Eastern Orthodoxy from an American Protestant perspective. And I picked that book up and I read it in two days. I paid for it and then I took it home and I read it. (laughs) And that was the beginning of the journey. And I don't have time to go through all the details, but over the next few months, there was point after point after point of either running into an Orthodox Christian at a bookstore or in my first visit to an Orthodox Christian church, somebody tapping me on my shoulder and calling me by my first name in a place where I thought nobody would know me. So it was clear that this was beyond circumstance, that whatever that cryptic prayer was that I was sending to the universe or whatever, that God had heard it and gave me a direction. So when people ask, the shortest version of this story is that God grabbed me by the shoulders and pushed me east. Hmm. So I knew from that summer that I was at least meant to be a practicing Christian and that there was so much more that I didn't know because Eastern Christianity doesn't even just answer the same questions that Protestants and Catholics bicker over in a third way, but rather start from a place of fundamentally different questions and therefore fundamentally different answers, which is maybe overstating we're still Christians, but that was the first evidence that there was more to this and that belief in our Savior was something that I was going to have. And then over the 16 years or so since, there have been innumerable similar experiences that led me to seminary, led me to the priesthood, and now led me to Salt Lake City. Thank you. When I hear descriptions of Greek Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, whatever it might be, the Orthodox Christian Church, Mm. when I have gone to services, people have talked about worshiping as the original church did, the church that Jesus founded. Now, we're in a beautiful cathedral, which the early followers of Jesus would have loved, (laughs) but did not have. So I wonder if you could talk to me about what are some of the elements of the service that you look to or you point to and say, these are part of the original worship of the followers of Jesus after his death. I'm going to guess that the Eucharist is maybe number one. Of course. course. Yeah, you know, even in in the Bible, in the Acts of the Apostles, it lays out the rudimentary forms of Christian worship. They weren't completely divested from the temple. It says that they were continuously in the temple. Hmm. In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. So that highly liturgical form of prayer was still something, even after the resurrection of Christ, that they were engaging in. But also, these were men who were formed in synagogues, where there's 
the singing of psalms and then the reading of scripture and then a teaching from a teacher or in Hebrew rabbi. Right. So if you take those two elements, the, the synagogue portion and the temple portion, and you squish them together, you end up with something very similar to, although in a much more rudimentary form, to the divine liturgy that we celebrate on a Sunday morning. So the earliest Christians would have gathered in that same sort of way, and they would have had the singing of psalms together, the reading of scriptures, which now included letters from disciples of Christ, from his apostles, from Paul primarily. Yeah, um, not yet gathered into what we call a Bible or exactly. a New Testament. Not yet at all. And depending on where you were, you had different collections. And only 300 years later does it get codified into a book, or in Greek, viblios, a Bible, so it's a reading of, of the Old Testament scriptures, certainly, but also these new scriptures, these new inspired writings from the people that learned at the feet of Christ. And then that would transition into a sacrificial portion, which was the meal. We're leading into Holy Week, and Christ establishes this meal. He takes out bread, and he blesses it, and he breaks it, and he gives it to his disciples and apostles, saying, take of this, eat it, this is my body. And he does the same with the cup. He says, drink of this, all of you. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And then later on, he says, every time you do this, you confess my resurrection. You proclaim my death and you confess my resurrection. So this death of the pure lamb is that sacrificial portion now bloodless, and that is what replaces the temple worship. And so in its earliest phases, this is a very Jewish thing. This is a very Hebrew way of worshiping. And it still is if we put on the right glasses to see it. But for 300 years or so, it was outlawed. It was illegal in the world that it was living in. It had to meet in secret if they would be exactly. together at all. Exactly. In catacombs, certainly, but also in houses that the wealthier members of the community would specifically offer to the congregation so that they could enact this hybrid synagogue temple worship. After about 300 years, it becomes legal, and no longer does it have to be hiding behind a normal house front, and they can start to build purpose-built temples over the sites primarily of places where martyrs were killed, and that is the initial beginning of these cathedrals. Originally, these earliest Christian edifices take three forms. There's a three-aisled basilica, which is a Roman public building, or you would have a cross-shaped sepulcher sort of building, calling back to the sepulcher of Christ, or you would have a rotunda, which was primarily a, a baptismal place. If you push the three together, which happens over time, you end up with a three-aisled, domed, cross-shaped Basilica, which is the standard form of an Orthodox church that you're sitting in today. Mm. So there's a shorthand, and a lot of times people will say that, oh, the liturgy has never changed. It certainly has, but its foundational elements are the same across the centuries. Mm. And so the part that becomes the core of what we do on a Sunday is called the anaphora, the, the prayers right before the meal. And whoever wrote that prayer and got it into the written record is who the liturgy is named after. Most Sunday mornings, we celebrate the divine liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, who was the Archbishop of Constantinople in the late, 400, late 300s. 
late 300s. And right now during Great Lent, we have a longer form that was written by St. Basil the Great, who was one of his contemporaries. So the, the structure is the same, but those prayers leading up to the meal are a longer version. Is there something I should ask that I don't know to ask? What I would say is that the Orthodox Church is there for everyone. You don't have to be Greek-speaking or Russian-speaking or, you know, from the Balkan countries. If you're someone who is seeking the truth with a capital T, in Orthodox we have a saying, not that other faiths don't have the truth or elements of the truth or portions of the truth, we simply believe we have 100% of the truth, at least as given to us. But the Orthodox Church is welcoming to anyone and everyone. And, you know, whether you have a dramatic life story as St. Paul did, Saul, the persecutor, into St. Paul, the apostle of the Gentiles and the great evangelist to the world of what is today, of course, Christianity. Definitely a dramatic story. Or even, as Father Patrick just shared, at a younger age. We can never dismiss at any moment in our own life history when we will encounter the living Lord or when we might be far away from God and that He takes the initiative to enter our lives and to summon us and to use or utilize us in a good way for His purpose. Even if we might think we're the most wretched of beings or the least among the brethren, or people who we might feel are indeed diametrically opposed to this Jesus of Nazareth. Christ, God, takes the initiative, and that is clearly seen, as Father mentioned earlier, in the icon of the resurrection. Usually when someone is drowning, they're reaching to grab the lifeguard or whoever. In the icon of the resurrection, or at least in a correctly painted version, it's Christ grabbing the wrists of the hands, usually the wrists of Adam and Eve. It's not them grabbing him. So in other words, it's Christ who is taking the initiative to save humanity, mm. not humanity trying to be saved. So I'm trying to say that anyone and everyone is welcome to come to our church. Certainly the Friday evening service, the midnight resurrection service are among the most dramatic services. But any liturgy, any Sunday service for anyone who is still out there searching for something more than this earthly world has to offer. We invite you, we welcome them to come. And as Philip said to Nathaniel when he was like, who is this Jesus Nazareth? We have found the Messiah. Hmm. Who is it? Come and see. It's simply an invitation. And that is an invitation that is offered, I believe, by Christ to the entire of humanity. Not everyone believes in Christ. Not everyone will seek to follow him. But the hope and prayer is that indeed the entirety of humanity will be saved, quote unquote, will come to know him. And we as clergy in our weakest of human forms try to do the best we can to lead people to Christ, certainly not to ourselves. Father George Nikas, Father Patrick O'Rourke, thank you both for speaking thank with you. me today in good faith. Thank you. The par excellence hymn of the Orthodox Church is the triumphal hymn in Greek, Christos Anesti, in English, Christ is Risen, that we sing beginning with the midnight resurrection service on Pascha, on Easter Sunday, and continue for 40 days after that. 
There are many hymns in the church that our young children learn, and many hymns that many Orthodox do not know by heart, but if there is a hymn that almost everyone knows, that as we joke in Greek that even the roosters and the chickens know, it's the Christos Anesti. And with your permission, we would be very happy to chant that for you in Greek and in English, just so that your faithful listeners can have even a little bit of a taste of what it would be to come and see. Christos Anesti Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure and spread the word by leaving a five-star comment or review where you get your podcasts. Our Twitter feed is at InGoodFaithBYU. InGoodFaith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good Faith.